Welcome to a special discussion section episode of Economics Amplified, the podcast series of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. What is discussion section? It's a chance for Kevin Murphy, the George J. Stigler Distinguished Service Professor of Economics at Chicago Booth, to sit down with economists of all backgrounds and research interests, compare notes, and talk about their unique approach to solving real-world problems with economic science. Video highlights from each discussion are available at bfi.uchicago.edu, but the full uncut conversation is available here. In this episode, Murphy talks with Nancy Stokey, the Frederick Henry Prince Distinguished Service Professor of Economics, about what her research indicates regarding the transformative effects that technology and trade, respectively, have on economies. My pleasure to have here today to speak with uh, Nancy Stokey, who's a long-term colleague of mine uh, in the economics department. Um, considerable overlap in our areas of interest, so I, you know, and but Nancy's done really some outstanding work um, in in economics and in particular in the area of economic growth. Um, now, economists know what we mean by economic growth, um, but why don't you tell us a little bit about how you think about economic growth and how people ought to what they ought to be thinking about when they hear an economist mention economic growth. Okay, so it's a pleasure to be here. Um, And in terms of growth, my my interest is in long-run growth. So when I think about growth, I'm not thinking about growth over the next one year. I want to think about the next 20 years or a century. So what I'm particularly interested in is what are the sources of long-run growth um, you know, over time and across different kinds of countries. Okay, so when you say growth, you mean like improvements in our standard of living. Is that exactly. really what you're focused on? Exactly. So if we think about growth in, say, you know, the you know, U.S. GDP, it has two parts. So there's growth in the number in population, um, and that's not really my area of interest at all. I'm interested in growth in per capita output, so growth in standards of living for people. Yeah. Okay, so and that's been one of really the things that is very telling about developed economy like the United States that sometimes we forget is just how much the standard of living has improved over time. Yeah, it's, it's, really, it's, it's quite stunning. So I, I was looking at some numbers recently. So. Over the whole 20th century, growth in per capita income, it was very, you know, really very constant over the whole, I'll talk about a couple of episodes that were outliers, but for the, over the whole century, it was about pretty close to one and a half percent per year for 100 years. So that, and how long does it take incomes to double at that rate of growth? You know, a little less than 50 years. So per capita incomes, on average, more than doubled. So that's, you know, kind of a stunning success. Wow, that's, I mean, and I think we sometimes forget that, um, that just how much standard of living has improved and how much those long run trends really matter. And we tend, you know, for example, you listen to the news and they talk about growth all the time and then they measure it on a quarterly basis, right? I mean. Yeah. For, for from my point of view, I, I don't want to think about anything shorter than about a decade because there are cyclical fluctuations. So, you know, growth rates go up and down quite a bit. 
So going back to the 20th century, you know, if we look at there were two episodes that were real outliers. One was the Great Depression when you know incomes fell and fell you know very drastically, and then there was a big boom during World War II. So if you looked at per capita GDP for the war years, there's a big spike. But if you look at the century as a whole, if you just if you took a trend line from say the first uh, you know. 28 years, like up to the crash of 29, and you just extrapolated that trend line, you would fit the whole the whole end of the century quite well. So these the the Great Depression was you know a big spike downward. World War II was a big spike upwards, and it, but then it just came back to trend. So, and nobody really knows why. I mean, the, the, so the growth rate was very stable over that you know very very long period, and we don't really understand very well why it was so constant. Okay, so, so let's kind take of a, puzzle. a couple of questions. One is, how does an economist think about, well, why is there growth? You know, why is it that we were so much richer at the end of the 20th century than we were at the beginning of the 20th century? And, you know, let's talk about it first just as a historical matter. If you just said, how is it that we were four times, five times richer at the end of the 20th century than we were at the beginning? So I think there's a lot of evidence that says technology is the key, and that that evidence comes from, you know, uh, from U.S. you know uh, uh, data, but also other countries in you know uh, around the world and over much longer periods of time. But there are lots of sources of evidence that say like technology is uh, just a, a key component, maybe not the only component. And, and I w I'll argue it's n not the only component, but it's, it's certainly uh, key. Um, so, and the, the evidence I'm thinking of is, all right, so first there's you know, the growth accounting evidence. So people have just taken US data over, you know, say a century or longer. That's about how long we have data for. And you can just, as, as a, just a, an accounting measure, there's really no economics here, it's just accounting. You know, we can measure growth in per capita income. We can, uh, you know, at least estimate growth in the stock of physical capital. We can uh, estimate growth in the stock of human capital or, you know, just the quality of labor. And then just as an accounting measure, say how much of the growth in output is accounted for with growth in physical and human capital. And you know, some is, uh, it's not trivial, but there's a lot left over, a huge amount left over. And technology seems to be, you know, the, it, it's at least a good candidate for, okay. for the difference. Let me talk about each of those components a little bit. So you talked about growth and physical capital. So those would be the kinds of things, machinery, plant mm -hmm. equipment, all the kind of assets that say, typically business assets people would associate with that. There's also household assets, but let's focus right. on business. So we look at, yeah, so in fact, the way uh, you know, we construct estimates of the size of the capital stock is just by taking investment in, you know, investment in structures, investment in equipment, and applying some depreciation rates, and you know, building up a stock figure from 
uh, investments over a long period of time. So we have per person, because we're doing everything per capita. Here, here now we're looking at everything per capita. So we have more physical assets per person. So right. that mm -hmm. sort of says there's just more stuff that you have to work with, and presumably if that stuff is productive, you should be able to produce more output per person if you right. have more assets per right. person. Right. Okay, that's exactly. one part. So that's one part. And that has added to growth, but doesn't explain the big growth in output that we see. No, no. Okay, maybe a third of it, maybe a quarter of it, something like that, I guess. Let's say now we say, well, but now you've forgotten the other part. We economists know, I'm a labor economist, and we know uh -huh that people are a very important part of the equation, probably more important than the physical part in yes, terms of definitely. Yeah. their contribution to output. And now we're doing it per capita, so number of people isn't really the dominant story here, but the quality of labor has gone up. If you look at the education right. level and skills mm -hmm. possessed by the average worker in 1900, far below where they were for the average worker in 2000. Right, absolutely. So, yeah. So educational attainment went way up over, you know, look at the educational attainment of the workforce that increased enormously. Um, experience also comes into play, so other factors. But I, I don't have to tell you you're a labor economist, but just, yeah, it's a much higher quality workforce at the end of the century compared with the beginning. Um, and, you know, we can at least estimate by how, you know, the size of the improvement. Okay. Um, and kind of do that off, you know, cross-sectional wage data. Um, and get, so again, so that contributes, you know, it, it contributes a big chunk. But then there's a big chunk left over. Okay, so one, one approach to thinking about growth and isolating the contribution of technology is to sort of, like you said, do an accounting exercise. Say, mm -hmm. look, output's gone up a certain amount. Some of it can be explained by the fact that we have more machinery. Some of it can be explained by the fact that we have better workers. Mm -hmm. But output per worker is still a lot higher than either of those would predict. Therefore, it must be that, quote, technology is improved. There's the mystery factor. Somebody so technology is, yeah. The, the, the prime suspect. Okay, say. so technology. Now, there's another approach also, though, right, which is to look at how we do things today mm -hmm. is very different, and the kinds of things we're doing today are very different than it was. So that's a different kind of evidence on technology, right? That sure. It's not that we're just magically doing exactly what we were doing before and we're just getting more output. We don't have the same guy out in his farm field with the same crops, and somehow magically he's just getting more farm output. No, that's, yeah, I mean, this is a, a, a very, a sort of a difficult part of measuring growth over very long periods of time. It's just, you know, you think about the set of uh, products that's being produced, it just, it changes over time. So a lot of the stuff that was produced in 1900, it just, it's not produced at all in 2000. Um, and you know the things that we take for granted in you know now you know telephones all the electronics didn't exist in 1900 so you have to do some work to try and figure out you just like how do we how do we measure the value of the goods and services produced in 1900 versus right. the goods and services produced in 2000 yeah like i like to tell my class that like to do the amount of computation in my cell phone 
would require like world GDP or something from like 1900, <laughs> right? Yeah, it yeah. would, I mean, literally, you just couldn't do that. You so could, yeah. part of it is expanding the, you can see the role of technology by expanding the portfolio of things that we do. Mm -hmm. But you can also see it within even narrowly. Like if you look at like output of corn per acre, I mean, it doesn't mm -hmm. tell a very different story than the economy as a whole, right? That we've oh, been able right. to increase corn output Yield, per acre. Yields per acre have gone up enormously, yeah. On same so, orders of magnitude, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, some of it is we use more inputs. Yeah. We got more fertilizer, we got more tractors instead of Better buying. seed, yeah, so. Now, so this way we've been discussing it though is to kind of take the world and split it into pieces. Here's technology, it did X. Mm -hmm. Here's human capital, it did Y. Here's physical capital, it did Z, and together they somehow explain this total. Mm -hmm. But I know from talking to you that you've said, well, that's kind of an odd way to look at it is in some ways, isn't it? It is, very much. I mean, there's, I, to me, there, there, there are two issues. First, and this applies especially to physical capital, if you ask why has there been investment in more physical capital, I think part of it is because improvements in technology make that, those investments in physical capital worthwhile. So in this accounting exercise, a lot of what we attribute directly to physical capital I think you know, it's, there's a good argument it's indirectly attributable to improvements in technology because without the technical change, you wouldn't have gotten that growth in capital. So that's but one maybe side. Without the, also the other way too though, right? Maybe without the growth in capital, we wouldn't have gotten, or at least a shift in the tech, not capital. It wasn't like the existing capital became so much more productive. To take advantage of the new technology, don't we need new capital? That, that, yes, that, that's, a, that's a fair point. That's a good point. Because a lot of, a lot of technologies are you know, just sort of embodied in, their cap, in the capital goods. So you, know, you can't, you think about, I don't know, uh, improvements in computing, you know, like it's, it's, it's in the, you know, the computer. So we need investments in different equipment to take advantage of some of the technical changes. Um, so, I so, so um, yeah, so you couldn't, a lot of the technical change you probably, you, you, you can't take advantage of it unless you invest in new capital. So that's, that's true. But I would still say it's, it's you know, the, the, the kind of technology is, is the more key driver. Now when you get to human capital, there I think, you know, it's, uh, they're much more co-equal because you can't imagine implementing new technologies without the better worker, you know, the better workforce. And to me, there I see much more just a complementarity. You know, if you think about investments in human capital, they wouldn't be so worthwhile if technology wasn't improving, but the investments in technology wouldn't be worthwhile unless, you know, the, the, the labor force was getting more skilled. So there, I think it's, you know, they're, they're on a more equal footing. Um, uh. So I guess one way to think about then, as you see the growth process over the long haul, is we're, we're, we're building new technologies, we're developing new technologies. In some cases, they're adding whole new aspects to our lives that didn't exist before. 
you know, mm -hmm. communications, true methods of communications change dramatically. We were able to do things that really we didn't they do were before. Beyond the realm of science fiction. Even. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So one, one is they add new things we can do. Mm -hmm. Another is they change how we do things. That the way we produce an ear of corn today is really different than the way we produced an ear of corn in the past. And those new technologies in either case require new capital usually. That is, it's not mm -hmm. the same old capital that's going to take advantage of that new technology. I couldn't use my right. old radio to watch TV. I needed right. a TV right. to watch you, TV. If you want to watch high definition TV, you need the new TV set. And it needed new workers to go along mm -hmm. with that. Mm -hmm. So we can see the process of economic growth, not just in terms of the aggregate amount we, of stuff we have per person has gone up, but we can see the transformation in, in how it's done. Is that yeah, it's a fair? Change, yeah, it's just a change in how things are produced and, and, and what's being produced. Although, I mean, if you think about the, you know, what's being produced there, it's, you know, a lot of the, the new products, new products, I think you can often find an old product that they're kind of substituting for. So, you know, people, you know, in the 20s were listening to, you know, radio, and now they're watching their high-definition TVs. So they're very different, you know, it's a different experience, they're different objects, but they, in some sense, fill, you know, some of the same wants from, you know, if you think about individuals and what people enjoy what they you know, what they want to have yeah I mean it's, it's interesting because I mean, now you're talking I mean I'm a colleague of ours for a long time and great close friend of mine Gary Becker kind of had this view of preferences that were very consistent with that that sort mm -hmm. of said there aren't that many basic things we want to do we want to be entertained we want to mm -hmm. be nourished we want to do do different things and mm -hmm. maybe what changes over time is how we accomplish those Pretty simple aims. Yeah, I'm 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 on board for that way of thinking about products that they have. You know, they, they're you know, basic wants and different products supply, you know, satisfies you know those needs and you know, and different mixes of stuff. So it's you know if you think about a dinner, it provides you know basic nourishment, but a dinner at a very nice restaurant is you know has a lot of other. Um, enjoyable factors as well. So in your view of the world, kind of, you're kind of a preference minimalist in some sense. Not, your preferences don't, aren't really the big driving story. It's not, people haven't no. changed so much from where they were a hundred years ago to where they are today. No, I think probably very little. And I think as economists, you know, one of my teachers one time said, you know, like attributing things to changing preferences is, you know, the last refuge of a scoundrel <laughs> in terms of economists. Like that, you, if, 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 if that's what you, it just means we don't know. So, so I think we want to, we want to, we don't want to really go there if we, but, if we can avoid it. But this is also a big difference, I think, between, you know, we talked earlier about, you're about long run and about long-run improvements in standard of living. And we talked earlier about why that's so important. That, that just, when you look at that long-run picture, it just dominates the business cycle as a source of 
concern about the future. What's our growth rate going to be? Probably much more important than is it going to be higher this quarter or next right. quarter? Yeah, no, it's just that, I mean, I agree with you. Like sometimes the, the newspapers, they focus on these very short-run growth rates. And, you know, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, you know, if, if we look at developed economies, you know, there's an easy way to like, goose up your growth rate for, if you want a high growth rate for one year. Engineer a big recession. Yes. And if it's short-lived, you'll have a big growth rate coming out of that recession. So it's these short-run growth rates to me that not 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 that important. Um, I don't want to say recessions are yeah. trivial, but I think if we if we think about what what's made us better off as you know you know a nation over the long haul, it's it's the the long run uh, part of growth. Now, one thing that I find interesting though is that, that when you do that shift from the short run to the long run, it also changes in in keeping with what we just talked about. Um, the emphasis on demand side versus supply side. I mean, that, you know, in the short run, again, you, when you listen to the popular press, there's all this discussion, well, we don't have enough demand. The reason incomes aren't doing very well, there's just not enough demand. Yet when I hear you talking about why we're so much richer now than we were in the past, demand changes for the same reason you said preference changes don't seem to play a big role. It's really about the supply side from an economist's point of view, what, what we're able to produce, what we have the capability of producing. Right. I think that's much more important. Um, you know, I, th I would say the place where, you know, I, in the U.S., I don't think that the demand side matters for short-run fluctuations, but not in the long run. You know, there may be other places, I would say, where might come into play a little bit is if you think about places where there's very where there's very heavy regulation of labor markets. Um, so in Europe, for example, that you know they have m much more highly regulated labor markets, very hard to, and there's much less turnover in the labor market. And in those, in some European countries, as you you probably know better than I do, unemployment rates, say for youth are extraordinarily high. And they've been high, very high for a long, long time. Now, so in some sense there's, you know, you think about like whole segments of those populations that they kind of never get a chance to get a first job. They're kind of regulated out of working. Um, so that's, that's what I see is, you know, if you think about labor markets here, you know, a potential, you know, adverse effect of, you know, like, a minimum wage that's too high, so high that, you know, a teenager can't get his first job. Yeah, now, one, so we've talked about the world in terms of trying to understand from an economic point of view the process of a country getting richer over time, and whether they're able to grow rapidly or grow slowly. Can you then talk about how that same theory is related to differences across countries at a point in time. Does that same way of thinking about the world help us understand why some countries are richer today than other countries are? So mm -hmm. the U.S. versus Korea, or mm -hmm. U.S. versus China, or you know India versus Africa. How does how does that same modeling approach that you've talked about for modeling a country over time? help us understand differences across countries at a point in time. So this, this accounting procedure that we talked about for looking at U.S. time series, 
So, you know, how does that work? Well, you line up all the years of U.S. data in a line and ask about growth from one year to the next. You can do exactly the same procedure across countries, just line up all the countries in the world from poorest to richest, and then ask the question as we move up this uh, ladder of countries, and you know, we need, we need to measure physical and human capital. We output measures you know, we can get, and we need to measure physical and hopefully human capital in each of these countries. And we can do, you know, just mechanically do the same exercise and ask when we go, as we go from one country to the next, and we've ordered them so they keep getting richer, how much of the change in income across countries is due to higher physical capital in the richer country per person, better human capital on average in the richer, and how much is unexplained? Um, so we just, it's sort of, uh, you know, mathematically exactly the same procedure. Okay. Um, and you get very much the same result, which is physical and human capital matter a lot, but there's a big part that's the res a residual, just, you know, not accounted for by either physical or human capital. Okay. Um, so let, I'm going to talk about a couple of things that come out of that. Um, one is... What does it say about the process by which a country can change its place in that line? Mm. That is, converge <laughs> in some sense. Get up in that top group. <laughs> move, up, move from the bottom to the top. And mm -hmm. then why do some countries seem successful at making that kind of transition and other countries not so successful? It seems to me one of the virtues of economics is that it should help you answer a whole bunch of questions with the same theory. And I think right. that's what we could try to do here as well. Well, okay, so let me mention another set of facts, which I think you know, uh, uh, suggests that technology is extremely important. And that's if you look at uh, across countries, I mean, there's a very old idea, this goes back to Alexander Gershenkron, about the advantage of backwardness. And so in his view, the advantage of backwardness is you could adopt technologies from other countries which, you know, had industrialized, uh, you know, before. Okay, so, so that idea goes back to the, like, 1950s, but uh, the evidence on that point was put together um, by Steve Parente and Ed Prescott. And what they looked at was doubling times. So... Uh, what do you mean by that? How long it takes me to double my how long? Yeah, so the, 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 the exact, so the, the exact uh, experiment is this. We take all the countries in the world and we pick some, you have to pick a, for your base a, a fairly modest level of per capita income. So when they did it, this was back in the 90s, I think they took like $2,000 per capita GDP, $1990. Look at the first year when a country gets to that level of GDP per capita, and then ask how many years does it take them to double? So if you look at the, the, the first countries that reach that, you know, it's a pretty modest level by today's standards. Uh, the Netherlands, I think, was the first. England was in there pretty early. The US is in there pretty early. 
But the doubling times were very long. So I think for the Netherlands, it was maybe 90 years. Um, and they, so in the, for the, early, the countries that were early to get to that threshold, it took a long time to double. So more recently, if you look at countries uh, that reached $2,000 much later, so now I can think about like the East Asian miracles or you know, uh, more recently uh, mainland China, and they double you know, way, way faster, it, it, you know, five or 10 years to double. And then you ask like, how is that possible? So again, like to me, the only way it makes sense is to think about these con just importing technologies from abroad. So I mean, adapting them, investing in them, but you know, the, it's it goes back to Gershon Krohn's idea that the advantage of industrializing later, you don't have to invent all the wheels yourself. Okay, you so let's let, let, let's play that out a little bit from both sides. One is, I'm the Netherlands. I'm the first one to get to get to. $2,000 per person in real income. I want to go to 4000 mm -hmm. Per our earlier discussion, absent an improvement in my technology, I'm not going to get there. Human capital is not going to do it. Physical capital is not going to do it. I'm going to have to get there by getting more technology. There's nobody out there, presumably, who has substantially better technology than I do. Maybe in some areas, some people have better, and I and Netherlands has worse elsewhere. But we basically got to push the frontier of technology right. out. So Britain, Britain would be a really stellar example for this. I mean, this was um, so. If you think about the Industrial Revolution, it kind of yep. started in England. They, you know, and what drove it? Well, you know, the steam engine gets lots of attention, but there were lots of other innovations as well, you know, just in weaving technology, spinning technology, dyes, you know, all kinds of stuff. So it was just, um, you know, there were a huge amount, I mean, just documented, you know, people have written many, many books on just the, you know, the technical change uh, during that period. Um, and, you know, in the Netherlands, I don't know, they were, they were big traders, improvements in boat building technology, navigation okay. technology. Okay, so one, one, one limitation when I'm already near the frontier of high incomes, which would be the people who reach this level first, is that there just aren't a lot of low-hanging, there's not a lot of low-hanging fruit in terms of bringing in technology. I have to develop technology. Right, yeah, if you're on the frontier, as we say technological advances, it's kind of a do-it-yourself, uh, Enterprise. There's nobody you can get okay. a lot of uh, help from. So. Okay. Now, so now, now, say I'm one of those guys who's pretty far behind the frontier. Mm -hmm. So even if there were no technical improvements in the universe at all, there's a bunch of technology I'm currently not using. Now, well, why don't I just adopt the technology and? I'm there. I'm, mm -hmm. So why don't mm -hmm. I get to the Netherlands super quickly? Because all I got to do is take this thing called technology. Please send me some <laughs> technology and whoop, I should get there, right? Yeah. It's, sadly, it doesn't seem to work like that. If it, you know, if it did, I suppose the whole world would be rich. So 
It's, you, you know, so countries that are behind the frontier, they can bring in technologies from outside, but you know, they have to, somehow they have to adopt them and make them their own. So and this is where human capital would be, you know, play, a, you know, a very important role is you, you can't, you can't, you know, take the, um, say the British uh, textile industry and start producing textiles using their methods of production unless you have you know some of their engineering skills and other skills so you need you need the human capital to work with the new technology okay um, you also need the physical capital that goes and you need the it. physical capital as well i mean that you know i would say like in terms of that you know you can take out a loan and buy it. So if it's going to be that productive, I suppose you can find a lender and you can, you can, you can buy the equipment. But the human capital is a little, you know, you have to do that kind of on your own. Yeah, but so. isn't there also another side of it, which is I, I want to go open a factory in some place and let's assume they got the workers that can do it and I can buy the machines and bring them in. But it seems hard to do that really quickly and hard to do that in isolation that, mm -hmm. you know, what happens when my machine breaks? Right. Are there the people there that have fixed it? Are the, are the repair parts mile, you know, thousands yeah. of miles away? Or the repairman, yeah. Like and the repairman, <laughs> exactly. I mean, it seems to me that this whole, it gets back to what we talked about before. Just like the new technologies that came in, didn't immediately and in and of themselves get us the greater level of output. There was a lot of things that we had to do along with it, with you the need, people yeah. and the machinery, and maybe not just the specific people and machinery that are in that factory, but a broader economic yeah. system that supports those things. And that yeah. slows down that whole convergence process. Yeah, so that's certainly, you know, it must, it's, it has to be an issue in every developing country. I mean, you know, for all the bad press Nike factories get, I would say they've been, you know, just companies like Nike locating plants around the world, they've done a lot to raise incomes. I mean, just, you know, it just, when they open a plant, when a, a, a multinational company opens a production plant usually I mean there's a long line of people when they say they're going to be hiring we might say by US standards their wages aren't very good but by local standards they're much better than the next best alternative but then you think about where where do where do multinationals locate their you know their their new factories they have to think about things like you know in I mean, here in Chicago, we take it for granted that when we turn the light switch, the light goes on. Uh, not true everywhere in the world. Um, so you think about electricity, roads, you know, transportation. There's a lot of inf just physical infrastructure that, you know, if that is, uh, you know, not up to some level, it, you know, it's going to be hard for a, a, a Western-type factory to operate at all. Um, yeah, so there's a lot, there are a lot of... Uh, you know, just in terms of infrastructure, lots of investments that you know have to be at some level to you know, to make if you want to make your city in a in a poor country a candidate for you know investment from outside. Yeah, so you would say the key things we need to we need to 
have the physical cap, we need to have the human capital. Now, one of the things about human capital is just how long it lasts. I mean, you know, when we, we talked about education levels improving, it wasn't like we just took everybody in the economy and sent them to school, right? We, we really didn't send very many, most of the people never went to school after they stopped. Right. You know, so that process isn't one where we just upgrade everybody. No, human capital has to, it, you know, physical capital you can, you can, you know, kind of, you can increase pretty fast. You just, you can go to a world market and buy machines and, you, but human capital, you know, it's just, it's, it's going to be a kind of a slow moving, you think about the average quality of the workforce, it, 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 it has to change gradually just because you think most people, you know, they, they go to school, then they start working and the amount of, you know, additional training they get there I mean there, there's there's some but uh, you know they're spending a lot of their time working so if we think about the workforce as a whole you know it just it turned it turns over slowly I mean it turns over as people retire and new entrants come in and over time you know new entrants are you know better and better schooled when they enter the workforce um, and maybe there's more learning during a career within the workforce. But that investment is, is I think, necessarily rather slow. Um, it just just because, you know, because it involves the demographics. So one thing I'm hearing from you is we have this technology aspect. In human capital, you would say, is the most intimately tied into the technology. And they, they, they have to work together. It's hard to mm -hmm. think about technology advancing without human capital advancement and, and, and really vice versa. Um, so that, that's one aspect of both growing countries over time and within countries. Um, so you, you, you have that aspect of, of, the, of the growth process, I think, importantly laid out. Is there anything, what else would you say are the lessons economists have learned about, geez, if you want to grow, here's what you need to do? Yeah, that's what we're not very, we don't know very much about yet. I mean, it would be wonderful if we had a magic bullet and we could go to you know, the poorer countries of the world and just give them a list and say, here's what to do. I would say one thing that there is, pretty good evidence is important is uh, just openness so openness to international trade and it's not obvious what the particular mechanism is but if you just look across a lot of countries that have been like more open and more closed the open ones do better and that's it's a pretty strong uh, you know and systematic finding. So, you know, if I were going to give advice to a less developed country, that would be number one. Yeah. Um, are you um, surprised as an economist? Are you surprised by that? I mean, it seems to me as an economist, trade, one of the things it allows me to do is, one, avoid doing the things I'm not very good at. Right. That helps. Mm -hmm. And also, maybe not having to do everything. We talked about this complicated process of moving forward. Mm -hmm. Well, 
I don't have to move all my industries forward simultaneously. I can right. find you the can things that I can do and that specialize and find a niche. Yeah, no, I think that's 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 very. But no, I'm I'm not surprised. You know, and I think that it's what's to me a little. It's it's hard to like put your finger on precisely what it is about trade that um, allows open countries to grow faster. Um, now, as you say, one 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 thing is just the the specialization, and you see that, you know, you see that very clearly if you go back and look at Britain d during the Industrial Revolution. Um, they uh, they kind of specialized in textiles, so and they what helped them like really you know uh, they got a lot of overall growth from textiles because they exported to the whole world, and what they imported was was food. Like England isn't a very good place for you know growing wheat. So they, they, you know, so they could just they specialize in textiles, export textiles, import food, and then and they, you know, they couldn't have gotten so much mileage out of the textile industry if, if they had just, you know, had the rather limited home market. Um, yeah. Okay. Now and later countries, I would say, you know, they did the same thing with electronics. A lot of the East Asian countries have, you know, they've, you know, gotten a lot of mileage out of uh, producing electronics. So electronics and and, and, uh, and other in you know, consumer durables. Uh, yeah, I mean, some of them gotten into other things like shipbuilding and other things like mm -hmm. that, right? Mm -hmm. so there's, I mean, I guess that's the story: is you you can avoid some of your weaknesses and take advantage of some of your strengths. Now, we traditionally, when people teach trade, often focus on innate differences across countries. You talked mm -hmm. about England not having a great agricultural base endowment of mm -hmm. producing agricultural products. But some of that can also even be on the acquired side. You, 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 you're, you're able to build an expertise in something. And, and, and then, mm -hmm. you know, you talked about the whole question here is how do we bring technology in? And if that's the key for people who aren't at the frontier, how does trade help bring that technology into the country? You know, part of it may just be that in the course of trading, people move back and forth. Um, they acquire new ideas when they're traveling abroad. They acquire ideas from, you know, the, 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 the foreigners who are coming in to sell in their country. I mean, so we had a student here, you know, a number of years back. He was Korean. And he had a very interesting thesis looking at technology transfer in Korea. So they, uh, in Korea, there wasn't any limit on like licensing foreign technologies, but they had to fill out some paperwork. So he could uh, look at all of the companies, you know, all the, the companies in Korea that were, you know, just licensing technologies from firms. They were mostly in Japan and the U.S. And what he and there, there were a lot, but what he found was most of them also involved bringing some, uh, you know, sort of engineers or trained personnel, so that when you set set up the new factory or whatever, um, you know, you have you have to get the local guys trained to to use this new technology. So you need some like transfer of people, and then have them teach 
the locals how to you know, run the plant. So I, I found that a very, very interesting just study because of that. It's just it's another example of this interplay between technology and human capital. Right. So, Isn't there uh, also some evidence linking the f the flows of both people and goods to the flows of investment? That, like, if I send my students to be in, trained in another country, those are the countries where I tend to get investment from and and things like that. That there's, in other words, this mm, whole mm -hmm. process of trading can facilitate the transfer other, of technology and human of capital across yeah. countries. Yeah. I've never looked at that evidence, but it seems, seems plausible. Right. Yeah. The, you know, because it seems to me, given what we've talked about, it's important for these countries, you know, we usually focus, okay, well, we need to get foreign investment going. We need to get uh, exports going. We need to build our industry. But what you talked about before is part of making that viable is getting the technology and then getting the other aligned pieces that are needed to take advantage of that technology. Mm -hmm. There's a tremendous mm -hmm. opportunity out there, mm -hmm. it seems to me, for lots of countries. Yeah. And to take advantage of it, we somehow have to make that happen. We have to make that technology transfer. But I guess if it was just so easy as writing a letter with the technology and sending it over or just signing a license agreement, it wouldn't be so easy. No, elusive. I mean, then, then it, it, you know, it would, would be easy to, everybody, everybody would be rich already. So it's clear, you know, it's obvious it takes more than that. Um, I think a, a fascinating study for somebody to do would be to you just look across, maybe it's been done already, I haven't seen, you know, you think about like cities and states in the U.S. compete to get, uh, you know, large firms to move into their city or their state, and they offer tax incentives and so on. You know, so they're trying to, you know, lure uh, employers to come to them. I'm sure the same thing must go on if you look across, you know, developing countries, middle-income countries, if they're trying to attract foreign direct investment from big multinationals, I would think they, they must engage in the same you know, kind of competition. But I would think there are a lot of, you know, some of it, maybe it's more like just you know, building your, you know, improving your infrastructure, make sure the electricity supply is stable and the roads are pretty good. And, and then there's other stuff, you know, and you don't have to bribe too many officials to get, to get your business done. So. Well, that's a, that's a part that I think is, is critical as well, the kind of regulatory environment you find yourself in and, mm -hmm. and, and whether how difficult it is to start a new business or get that foreign investment and how f confident those foreign investors can be that they're actually going to reap a return on their investment. Right. The, you know, I suppose there's always some fear about you know, the instability. Of, if, the, if the local government looks very unstable, then maybe that's not a good, good spot to invest. Okay. One other thing, I want to come back to the rich countries because, you know, we talk about, you know, we look at the world today and, and we, I think a lot of people look at, geez, we're just, we're getting all these new technologies and, but we don't seem to be getting a lot of bang for the buck. This is sort of a slow growth story some people try to tell. Yeah, these know. latest technologies just aren't panning out the way they should. What's your what What's your lesson to, as an economist who's studied these things for a long time? 
should we, how should we take that? And how, how should we how think about How gloomy should we be? That, yeah, that how gloomy are, should we be? It's, the party's over and now it's, I think not very gloomy. Um, I think, you know, this, the, this slowdown in growth that some people have talked about, it's, you know, it, it's been for a short period. And, you know, even you go back to the 20th century, there was a period in the 70s when it, people were talking about the, the great productivity slowdown. But then it sped up again. So if you, if you take a little bit longer horizon, it's just, it's a little blip. So I guess my first inclination now is to think this is kind of a, it's a, it's a could well be a blip. And I don't see any reason to think technological change is gonna stop. I mean, there's not, you know, you look at you know areas like material science. You look at uh, medicine. It seems like there, there's an enormous amount of you know uh, research going on, and and you know to by the day, you know new products, new processes, new treatments for you know uh, illness. It's are, they're just coming along one after the other. I mean, some some of it you know maybe it's maybe hard to measure what. The improvements they're delivering. I mean, so you know, if a lot of research, you know, in the last couple of decades has been in the you know healthcare sector. So you know, better drugs, better uh, open heart surgery, better hip replacements. Now, but health outcomes are notoriously hard to measure in terms of GDP. Um, it's like, in fact, sometimes it's. Because we just measure, basically we just say, that, you know, whatever is put in, that's the value of what comes out. So if, and, and then it's, if, if instead of an expensive, you know, open heart surgery, I invent a little pill that costs five cents, and, and that does exactly the same thing as open heart surgery, GDP's gonna fall, because now, you know, it's only worth five cents. Yeah, no, so um, a couple questions on, on that. So. One theory of productivity slowdown would be measurement, that it's maybe the gains we're having are harder to measure. Um, another one might be, though, related to what you talked about before, which is, remember, technology doesn't in and of itself do all the work, that it takes, you have to do things to use the technology, adapt to the technology, and that takes time, particularly on the human capital side, where you know things don't have change. The world, the labor force doesn't change overnight. I mean, in fact, you could view a world where if we had a new technology that suddenly appeared today, we might actually get slower growth for a while, as we spent a lot of our efforts implementing that so technology, in investing in the technology itself, the complementary inputs. That that's. That's possible, yeah. You know, and, 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 and finding out where that technology is useful and where it's not. I mean, right? I mean, I get this new technology. It's going to give you no benefit in some places. It's going to give you a huge benefit in others. I don't know which. Mm -hmm. I try applying it multiple places. <clears throat> Ultimately, it's a good thing. I weed out the ones where it doesn't you work. Figure out what, what, it, what, it's, what it's good for. Yeah. That's why I just think it takes, you know, it's it's too it's it's way too soon to declare the the, the death of technological change. Yeah. yeah now, yeah. but but part of it also might be on the measurement side. I remember once I I was talking to Alan Greenspan and he he said he had a pretty good way. He said, well, look, for a long time you could measure the growth in GDP. You didn't even need prices. You just needed a scale. 
<laughs> and if you just put all the output on a scale and you just weight it, that you could measure the economy growing just by the total weight of the output being produced by the economy. Mm -hmm. At some point, that stopped. That, that's, yeah. That the weight. Now we like miniature stuff, so <laughs> that, that method's no good. <laughs> the, weight, the weight method doesn't work anymore. And to me, when it was about weighing things, yeah, you needed prices, but as long as you didn't screw up the prices and said lighter things are worth, you know, as long as you didn't get the prices screwed up too badly, you were probably mm -hmm. going to get a growth in output. Mm -hmm. But once I get to a world where weight's not growing and maybe rate weight's even shrinking, um, not, so, not so clear a very crude measure of output like that is going to work so well. No, is that kind of, part of our work. problems? I would think, I don't know, maybe, I'm, I'm not an expert on these measurement issues, but it certainly has to be the case that the more you know, change in products is going on, the harder it is to you know, just get a, get a kind, of, uh, kind of good read on how fast total output is growing. So if, we think, you know, if, you, th if you think about trying to compare the, just the pile of goods and services that were produced in 1900 and in 2000, they're so different from each other. You know, if you asked about what's the value of this, the 2000 stuff at 1900 prices, well, there weren't any 1900 prices, so you can't. And the other way around, it's just the prices don't exist because the products have changed. So the way we do it usually is, you know, just chain it through the intervening 99 years. Now, and that works, I guess, pretty well. I mean, we, we never really know, but it seems sensible. It seems sensible, <laughs> and it's all we've got, so that's what we do. But then if the technical change, you know, is a different type or gets, you know, is more rapid or if products, I think it's especially if products, you know, just come in and out of the, the market basket more quickly, that chaining starts to get more difficult. And also as these hard to measure sectors in the economy like healthcare get bigger, I mean, that's what now, about 20, almost 20%. And that's, it's very hard to measure output in that sector. So those, um, as Angus Deaton calls them, like, you know, uh, measurement resistant sectors, as they get more important, our measurements are probably not as good. Now, everything we've talked about so far is about GDP per capita, the market side of the economy, the kind of, not, we haven't talked much about the household and what's going on in the household. And um, what do you think there? What do you think is, is that gonna be important? We, or do, we, do we need to say, well, geez, I gotta bring the household into this if I'm really gonna understand the world? Or do we think some good measure of GDP. Let's assume we can do some of these price, tackle some of these pricing issues and measure the market side well. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's important to go to the household, critical? I think it's important. I think it gives you, you know, probably, if we think about per capita GDP, you know, it, I mean, that's an important component of, you know, if we think about what we want to measure is, you know, kind of well-being. Right. In, in a broader sense. So, you know, market goods and services are a part of that. So that's, I think, we, we want to keep measuring GDP. But then, you know, um, there are other 
you know, there are other things that are uh, important for well-being as well. So I think, you know, people look at the household, they look at, you know, just amount of leisure time. So as more women have moved into the workforce and, you know, they hire nannies to take care of their kids, you know, th now there's a lot of things that have moved, like, out of the household. It used to be, you know, moms just looked after their own kids. So now a lot of the same activities are, they become a market transaction rather than within the household. So I think we, we want to think about what goes on inside the household, def for sure. And I think also if we think about human capital formation, like there's, you know, like uh, just like by now, you know, lots of evidence that what goes on at home before a child gets to, you know, even like preschool is very important. So human capital development starts very early. So we have to think about what goes, I think, hard about what goes on in households. So that's another message that comes out of, I think, your research, which is given the central role that human capital plays alongside technology is really a critical element of this long-run growth process for a given country or explaining why a country is richer than another country at a point in time. That those, those are those are critical elements. Understanding the human capital investment process mm -hmm. is, yeah. is, is important. Yeah, and sort of how, how we can, you know, what, what, as a society, what we can do to, you know, make sure everybody is, you know, as the new generations are born, that everybody is, you know, having a chance to, you know, you know, uh, you know, invest in their human capital. Well, that's one thing that really did happen in the, in the United States over that 20th century is, you know, the access that people had to education mm -hmm. improved and, 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 and expanded geographically, for example, that you know, mm -hmm. we saw big improvements of education in the South and other parts of the country that uh, contributed to our overall growth. Um, but we also have the household side of things. And, um, and, you know, we talk about education, but, you know, as any labor economist, I know education is a small part of the story, I mean, when it comes to productivity across people. The fact that some people are educated explains, you know, educated yeah, so workers on average earn more than less educated workers. Okay. But, but there's a tremendous but, but schooling, overlap. schooling doesn't explain, there's a lot that schooling doesn't explain. And, you know, where does, you know, what, what else is important in developing human capital? So, yeah, I mean, families have to be, a huge part of it. So I mean, I suppose we see that if we just look across different types of families, we see where kids, you know, do well and where they do badly. Okay. Now, one one question we've talked about is, you know, you have the, you have a poor country and they lack technology. Maybe they lack human capital. Maybe they lack even physical capital in lots of ways. And. So one answer to say, well, how do we improve standards of living is to take the technology and move it there. What about the alternative of moving the people? What about allowing more people to move to where the technology is and where the capital is and where the other human capital is? That is, how does immigration or the lack of immigration fit into your story? Well, I, th I think, you know, just a, a, a a more open immigration policy, you know, it certainly makes the immigrants, you know, better off. If you ask why do people want to migrate, you know, it's it's for 
Well, uh, to, to a very large extent, it's for, you know, just better work opportunities. Now, you know, so why, yeah, so why, what's the difference between letting, you know, shipping technology and uh, factories to Mexico or letting Mexican workers come to the U.S.? You know, I would say actually it's probably, you know, like from the point of view of the individuals, they, they're probably better off in the U.S. We have better infrastructure. We have a good legal system. Um, so I think uh, from the point of view of people, um, I would say you want to make migration as open as possible and let people vote with their feet. Um, and that would be both, you know, you gave the example of low-skilled workers, but maybe high-skilled workers as well moving across uh, countries. Yeah, yeah. Sure, and, and that, a lot of that goes on. I think the barriers are probably higher uh, for lower skill workers. Um, yeah, now one, one thing you talked about was um, the ability of, of people to move and, 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 and immigration across, across the countries to, to kind of equalize, you know, to take advantage of that because they're better opportunities. But what about the investment opportunities as well? Don't a lot of immigrants come to a country not just because it's better for them, but because it's a better opportunity for their family, their kids, and it's an intergenerational side of that? Yeah, when I say better for them, I was thinking that if it's the family that is what's moving, then it, I, would, I would treat the household as a, as a unit. So. They're, they're getting, you know, better, say better economic opportunities for, you know, the short run and better educational opportunities for, for their kids. So all of that. So, yeah, I, th I would think about the household as, as maybe the unit for thinking about a lot of migration decisions. Now, it's tempting to think that these benefits for the immigrants must come at a cost for the natives. Yeah, I think it depends which, you know, yeah, which natives. And that's, you know, that's, that's, I think, an issue. I would say even more broadly, if you think about, um, so it's, it's, it's true that if there's a, uh, a, you know, a large inflow of migrants, of, you know, doing a particular type of work, they're going to compete with domestic workers. Um, that's, that's true. Now, does that mean we should now on the and if they stay in Mexico and you know factories are built in Mexico and the stuff comes here, it's it's really the same. So that's. You know. But then I would say the other thing is to think about from you know if we think about this interplay between technology and human capital, I think the other place where it shows up is when you th when you think about income inequality. So that's been much in the news lately. I mean, we just, we've all heard inequality's grown a lot in the last couple of decades. Now, again, like, and there's nothing on the human capital side that suggests that should have happened. Um, so to me, to get the, you know, I'm... You're talking my about inequality <laughs> of human capital. I, it's, I, it's wage inequality, so that's grown enormously. Correct. Even, even though I'm not sure human capital inequality has really changed 
so drastically. I would say, I, I, I always tell the story, it's all about prices, not about the quantities of human capital that mm -hmm. different people have. Mm -hmm. The prices have changed. What the market right. is paying for different levels of types human of capital. human capital. So exactly. So then we have to ask why has the price all right, so you know at the at the you know in the you know this data probably better than I, you know, Dick, in the in the fifties there was a big wage compression and then there was the growing skill premium and now uh, it seems there's wage polarization. So it's kind of the middle the middle income group that hasn't had wage gains. So I mean, to me, again, it seems like t technical change is probably at the heart of a lot of this. So it's just a lot of jobs in that middle income group have uh, become uh, fewer jobs and not as well paying, relatively. And it's, it's technical change that, you know, I think is has driven a lot of that. I mean, a lot of those are, you know, we, we talk a lot about the manufacturing jobs that have moved abroad, but also I would think even more manufacturing jobs have gone to machines. So just robots have replaced a lot of, you know, what, what used to be, you know, pretty, you know, high-skilled blue-collar workers. You know, there's not, there aren't so many jobs in that category, but a lot of it is, is, is machines, not not foreigners. So technology so. plays a big role there too. Oh, huge. I yeah, think. yeah, you're absolutely right. I mm -hmm. think that, I would agree with that. That technology, it's not as visible. I mean, we tend to hear, what do you hear about? Immigrants, oh, that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Or trade, that's the mm -hmm. problem. But technology plays a big role. It's not quite as visible. No, it's not as clear. You can't, it's harder to point to it. But I think it's probably a much bigger factor in terms of you know the total what's happened to the number of jobs and types of jobs that um, we have but but as you talked about earlier technological change isn't new right in fact if you look at the f most of the 20th century the first two-thirds of the 20th century there was an enormous technological replacement for low-skilled workers mm-hmm but we were able to reduce the number of low-skilled workers pretty dramatically over that same period of time. That right. is, you know, if we had had the 1900 population in 1975, we'd have had a serious problem for low-skilled yeah. people who were either illiterate or very, very limited literacy. Yeah, there were there weren't jobs. There were no, there were no, not so many jobs for the for that that part of the labor force. So I think it's, you know it's a challenge for I don't know I think it's going to happen to every society going forward just how to think about you know what do we what do we want to do about technical change that you know I would say benefits society as a whole but has you know definitely has a negative impact on on some groups like what what you know what can we do which what do we want to do about you know, it's uh, you know uh, making sure that 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 some groups are not like bearing the cost of this technical change that that is advancing the country as a whole. So you would say slowing technology probably isn't a great answer because when you look at the long term, it's really what's allowed us to get richer. Right, but we do. I, I don't know. I think there's. It, we at least want to think about you know what we want to do 
to uh, you know retraining programs or something that people who whose uh, jobs have been you know displaced from their jobs from you know in technological change or foreign competition you know will be even better off if we can retrain those workers to do something productive they'll be happier and the country will be better off so we have to think about how to um, manage as is you know career transitions for people in a world where technology keeps changing you know rather fast and you know you can't just if you started out manufacturing buggy whips like maybe you can't keep doing that your whole life you get technology wipes that out as an industry and you have to go on to something else yeah I mean in, it seems to me as in a world of slower population growth that adaptation process becomes more and more important because you can't depend nearly as much as well the inflow of new people are going to do all the adjustment for me and I can keep doing what right. I was doing yeah. before. No, if technology change is rather slow and there's enough population growth then maybe you can, yes people can always stick with their old occupation and they're retire you know just they're retiring as that occupation is just you know getting into its sunset year. But now we have a slower population growth and people are, you know, healthy and productive longer. So they're having longer careers, you know. So it's not, you know, maybe when people, you know, average lifespan was only 50 or 55, it was less of an issue. Now people, you know, you know a lot of people, they don't want to retire at 65. They want to keep working. And we, see that, rising, so. we see rising participation rates at older mm -hmm. ages for both women and men. And so, to connect all this together, it seems to me, listening to you today, I just hear, you know, one, we should think about long-term things, not just about the business cycle. That's an important thing that economics can tell us. That is a driver of what makes us as well off as we are. That long-term process is critical. Mm -hmm. Two, technology in the adaptation to implement that technology is an incredibly important part of that story and in particular human capital with its long-lived nature and all the rest of it is a key partner in this game with technology. And finally, that that's not just about growth, it's also about the differences we see across countries and as we just talked about, it's part of the story of inequality as well. So technology, a kind of abstract term in some sense, but it's something you can see if you look out at the world that, you know, the world looks very different, not just in terms of the amount of stuff we have today, but in how we do it and, and the kinds of things we have. So you, you're telling us that's what we ought to really think a lot about. I think so. I think, you know, if you think about the, I don't know, it's kind of the welfare consequences of various things, I would say, you know, uh, thinking about what influences technical change? You know, that's, as I said, as I said that's, if, if that's where all our growth is coming from in the long run, and I think it is, then that's, you know, from a welfare point of view, dwarfs lots of other issues. That we spend lots of time on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Nancy. This has really been a pleasure. I think it's a super interesting topic and one that's 
critical, but doesn't get all the attention that it deserves. Okay. Well, it's been a pleasure for me, too. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Economics Amplified on SoundCloud and on the BFI site. To learn more about the Becker-Friedman Institute for Economics, visit bfi.uchicago.edu.